0: You are listening to the sermon series, Follow. In this sermon, Pastor Dan Chung examines the gospel according to Luke, the identity of Jesus, and the cost of discipleship. The following is a presentation of LifeLight Church in San Francisco. For more information and other audio content, please visit LifeLightChurch.org. I'm not playing games. So, in the past weeks we have looked at the cost of discipleship and what it costs to actually follow Jesus. And it really does cost us everything. Um, but if we look just here in chapter 17, the previous 10 verses, um, Jesus has given us kind of the fundamental basics of what it means to follow him. And we've looked at the responsibility in terms of the community and individually. And if you remember Dan, he talked about the reality of hell and the reality of sin. And We have to see it as that. Hell is a real place. Just as heaven is a real place. We have to see them both in balance of each other. And the reason we see that is because we see the reality of sin. Because sin is us walking away and becoming separate from God. And we have that responsibility within ourselves personally. To see the sin in our lives and in community. Because it's so devastating. And we're called to rebuke each other in that sin. But also on the far side of rebuking each other, we're called to forgive. Because that forgiveness shows that not only are we trying to rebuke each other, to call each other out in their sin, but we want restored relationships. We want restored relationships with God and with each other in this community. We want to be in a right relationship with God. And thirdly, the... The stories that Jesus have been telling talk about the role of faith in terms of how it plays in following Christ. And this faith is the basic attitude of walking with God in trust. And it's it's recognizing that God is capable of doing things. He is a promise-making God, a promise-keeping God. But it's also just accepting what he does in his timing and in his way. And Jesus primarily isn't concerned with the amount of faith that people have. He isn't concerned with the the volume of it. But he's just concerned that, that we have faith. He said if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you got it. Because that faith is trusting in God. He says don't look for more, just know that you have it. And he says... Because that faith is what will enable us to trust God. And in trusting God, we're called to live lives doing what our Master has said, as slaves. But the story isn't just that. We're not just slaves. How have we seen God viewing us in terms of doing His will? We see Him not treating us like slaves, but He treats us As co-heirs, he invites us to his banqueting table. And he says, do the work with me. Because you're co-heirs with my son Jesus Christ. And that's where we've been. And that's leading us up to today. So, let's um, grab your sheet. We'll read together. Um, And this will take us into Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And so, uh, as we always do. I'll read one verse and then all together we'll read the next verse. So, we're in Luke chapter 17 starting with verses 11 through 19. <clears throat> on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And he, and he had to the they called out. They called out. Uh, they called out saying, "Jesus, master, have mercy on us." Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? And then he said, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks in this time that we have to gather as your children and to listen to this story in the Gospel of Luke of what it means to follow you as your disciple and as your children. And Lord, we just pray that your spirit hovers in this place to give us understanding Give us ears to listen, minds to understand, and hearts open wide to receive you. And Lord, I pray that you're with this feeble pastor sitting before you. May his words not be his own, but may your voice be heard through him. And may we together listen in such a way that we are changed, so that we may go out and live the lives that you've called us to do. And it's in this we give you thanks and praise, Lord. Amen. So here we are. A story of ten lepers. And we have to see this in context that Jesus is then on a journey towards Jerusalem. We've seen that as he turned his face toward Jerusalem, meaning he's going to his death. He's going to his cross. And <clears throat> he's taken <clears throat> excuse me up to this point a long period of time to stop and to teach. Um, both the Pharisees, those teachers of the law, and the crowd, and then he's narrowed it down often to teach his disciples. And now, here in chapter seventeen, the journey towards Jerusalem continues. And as always, he's called for everyone listening to weigh the cost for discipleship. <clears throat> and in in his presence, he's called for everyone to make a decision on who he is. He's asked his disciples, about the crowd. Who do they say that I am? But he's turned most specifically to each one of his disciples. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And this question still looming as he's journeying on towards Jerusalem. Because in that decision, when Christ says to us, who do you say that I am? It makes all the difference to us. And it, it makes all the difference in the way that we shape our lives in the way that we conduct our lives, in the way that we manage our time. It makes the difference on how we approach Him. It makes the difference on how we approach other people, in the way we manage our money, our sexuality, and just simply in the way we approach other people. So it's this question that looms. Who do you say that I am? And So we come to the text today. And it's really opening up a much larger passage of Scripture that has at its core the end times in mind. The coming day of the Lord. That day when Christ will come in all of His fullness to judge between those who have been faithful to Him and to those who have not. And so Jesus has finished teaching and He's moving on and He's traveling in the northern part of Israel, I mean, it's between the east-western boundary between Galilee and Samaria. And on the journey, he and his disciples are encountered by ten lepers. We've all known, we've we've seen this before. Leprosy is a skin disease. Um, Bach has even seen some of those people in the Philippines. It's it's a it's a skin disease that's fairly contagious, and. In the biblical world where Christ was living, it wasn't so much that it was contagious, but it had a really stigma to it. It had an implication that these people were social outcasts. Lepers had to constantly isolate themselves from other people so as not to contaminate um, anyone that was around them. And even when they were going through more populated parts of towns, they had to shout very loudly, unclean, unclean, just to announce their presence so that the crowd could part as they were walking through and um, I don't mean to think it's too humorous but it's kinda of fun when when you have a very close tie with something that you're in scripture I'm not saying leprosy's is funny in any way but um, I used to live in Korea most of you know that and I lived there in the late summer and early fall of 2009. Do you guys remember a really big world event that was happening on that time? What? 2009. It was when the world was terrified of H1N1. Do you remember this? Yeah. And I lived in Korea at that time. And you guys who have been to Korea, on any given day, Korea has a real big stigma of foreigners. Um, They're a very homogenous culture. And if you're a foreigner, you're kind of seen as that. You're an outcast. And especially being a white face, I was seen as that every day. But um, that stigma was escalated even more with you know travelers coming into their country and bringing H1N1. Every country was that way, but so much more in my experience in Korea. But um, it was during that late summer, I'd come back to the United States to visit family, and I was going back to Korea to begin the fall semester because I was teaching in a university, and um, in all of that fear of outsiders bringing H1N1 into the country, they actually canceled or delayed the the fall semester for two weeks, just so that the incoming foreigners would not bring their disease to the students. (laughs) It was pretty cool. I mean, I didn't complain too much about the the extended vacation because I didn't have to immediately jump into teaching. I I had some time to relax. But the joke became, when we were on campus, especially amongst the foreign professors, was that we had to walk around shouting, I'm clean! I'm clean! So that, you know, everyone could stay away until they could prove that we were healthy. But, um... (laughs) You see the the, the implications of the story here. And when we get into the story, we see that the main figure, one of these lepers, was a Samaritan. And we've seen the Samaritan people before in the Gospel of Luke. They were a, a racial and religious half-breed. And more or less, they were an enemy to the, the holy nation of Israel. Um, and to the Jewish mind... Seeing a leper, who is also a Samaritan, was shocking that they were receiving grace from from God at all. They were double outcast. And they were often seen as people that were simply just beyond help. There's no use trying to help them. But Jesus enters the village, and he's approached by ten lepers. And the fact that they draw near to him shows that there's something special about Jesus. Jesus is approachable. Even at a distance that the the lepers keep, he's approachable. He's accessible. And so they cry out for mercy. Have mercy on us, Jesus. And it's just a simple cry of compassion. And I said it's at a distance that they come. And what they're doing is they're actually, even as Samaritans, they're upholding the Levitical laws. All of these do nots and and thou shalt nots and thou shalt do's. They're upholding it because they knew that they were ritually unclean. They were unable to come into the community of faith to worship with everybody. They knew that. And so they knew they had to keep that distance. And um, something else you see in, in observance of the law is Jesus says, as they approach, all he says to them is, go see the priest. And what you would do is, if you were ritually unclean for some reason or another, you were instructed, once you were healed, to then go to the priest, to kind of declare your cleanliness, to declare your ability to go back into the community. So we see Jesus telling the people to do this. Before their healing has even happened yet. He, he tells the lepers to go. Almost promising that. By the time that you get to the priest. You will be healed. And so we see that if they believe Jesus. The healing will happen. So they turn. And they go see the priest. And it's amazing that. This is where we see God's grace happen. Because. In healing these these men right here. God is allowing these people to return to normal life again. They're no longer outcasts. They're no longer isolated. They can be with people again. They can do the things that we take take for granted. They can shake hands. They can touch each other. They can hug. And simply they can come and be in a place like this where we're worshiping God together. They were able to return to that normalcy in life and to not be shoved out to the, the outskirts and margins of society. <clears throat> and it's these events that we see these men are experiencing deliverance from the physical sickness. But it's interesting to see that it's not so much the physical sickness that is being shown here. Because what they are experiencing is not equal to full forgiveness. So one of the men he breaks from the group. Only one of them. And he's full of praise. I mean, it says he shouts with a loud voice, he's he's so overwhelmed. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. And it's right here at the story that we find out that he's a Samaritan. And the reason I say we find out that he's a Samaritan is because there's a subtle hint here. Samaritans, as we know, that they were the outcasts, they were the half-breeds, the enemy. But they were considered that because they were considered people who were insensitive to the grace of God. They were totally hardened. They were so far gone. Totally insensitive. But this one man who turns back is a Samaritan, and out of the crowd of ten, he's the only one who is very sensitive to the one that has healed him. And in that sensitivity, Jesus just simply asks, Where are the other nine? And he says that He says, Was no one to return and to give praise except this, this foreigner? This outcast? Have we heard comments like this before? What about the, the centurion soldier? Yeah, Jesus says, Just like him, he says, I have not seen faith in all of Israel than one like this. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Is no one to return to me to give me thanks except this foreigner? The hint here, and almost the whisper is, why am I not seeing it where it should be coming from? And he's praising the foreigner, because the foreigner, the outcast, the one who is supposedly insensitive, is really being sensitive To what is truly taking place here. And two things are being highlighted here. First it is the example of gratitude. That is being displayed in the Samaritan. He's shown that there's the possibility of responding to God's grace. From outside of the nation of Israel. From outside of the inside crowd. There is that possibility of God's grace extending to all mankind. And then we see that sometimes the most sensitive people to God's healing and to God's grace come from outside of the community. Come from outside of the places that we think it would best be expected. And then Jesus responds to the man with encouragement. Because he encourages the man's attitude of thanksgiving by telling the man, "Your faith has made you well. Your faith, your trust in God, has made you well." And he is saying that although he has experienced the blessing of healing, this one who has turned back—it's really that his faith that has truly established ties with Jesus, <clears throat> and it's his trust in God <clears throat> that has truly established and seeing God's salvation. I mean all the men have been healed, but the deliverance affirms that what he has experienced is greater than his physical heal- healness. Because isn't it true with all of us that in Christ we recite John 3:16, right? What's it say? Oh God for God loved the world. I mean, Christ has died to save all of us. Christ has offered us all forgiveness. But do we like this one leopard? Do we turn back and personally give Jesus thanks for the healing and forgiveness that he's provided us? So we see in the story that Jesus continues to minister to anyone because it's the world that he's coming to. And Jesus isn't a hoarder of his compassion. He isn't hoarding his his love for just one specific group. Think about the, the story of the prodigal son. What's the story being told there? The story of the prodigal son. The son leaves with his yeah. half of the father's inheritance. Spends it all and comes back and the father welcomes him back with open arms and just loves him. Yeah. God's love is just so huge and his compassion... This goes beyond comprehension. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. He just simply is that compassionate. Think about the story of the lost sheep that we've seen. He cares for the ones that were lost, just the one. And all of all he asked of us is just to approach him with humility, and just to see the reality of things that we aren't much but He cares for us. We don't deserve it, but He gives us mercy. And all He asks of us is to come to Him with mercy, with a broken and contrite heart. But I think the most important element that we have to hold on to is just gratitude and praise. And it's because the gratitude and the praise of the Samaritan comes to Jesus. Jesus. And it's this praise that again and again and again it establishes, it establishes a true relationship with God in the way that it's supposed to be. And it's really a life of thanksgiving that 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 brings us to a place of of accounting god's goodness in our lives because it it, it restores us to a balance of not just simply knowing about him um if you read the newsletter uh, i i that people of all almost faiths of people of all backgrounds they they read the bible and they often say the same thing We see Yahweh, he's an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-compassionate God, who is holy. And even hard-nosed, hardened atheists, they say that Jesus, this historical person that walked the earth, has done more to soften the hearts of people than any other person that has ever lived. Do they have faith? No, they don't. They know a lot about Jesus, but the whole point is that Jesus and God is not just something to be understood. He's someone that is to be honored with the lives that we live. And so we look at this example of praise and adoration, and we're, in a sense, taught that that's supposed to be part of our life. And here at LifeLight and all of our, the all our churches... We highlight this in terms of a quiet time. What does a quiet time do? What does it allow us to see? It allows us to spend time with God. How does Dan put it a lot of time? He says, go do this. Dan says what? Go on your date with Jesus. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, I even laughed at Dan the first couple times I heard it. You know, go on a date with Jesus. It just sounds kind of cheesy and corny. But the more and more I hear it, I really like the way he says it. Because think about what is a date. Think about a date with a person. What is that? Spending time with them. Yeah, it's simply that. And the thing is, if you're going to have a long-lasting relationship, even if it's not just totally intimate with a friend, if you're going to have a long-lasting relationship, you need to have dates with them. You need to just simply go out, have time, have no agenda, just spend time with them and enjoy their presence. Just to be happy with them. And ultimately, that reminds us that we need to be thankful that they're simply with us. We need to be thankful that they're with us. And so, going on this date with Jesus, it's the same thing. We need to meet with Him often. In order just to be refreshed with His presence. And to remind Him of the goodness that He brings to us. In His person. By the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because, think about it. When someone truly falls in love with another person, what's happening there? Purple. Purple? (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Well, Hollywood would tell us something like, oh, they're experiencing love, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's true. They are experiencing love, but it's not just some entity. It's not just this wonderful, delightful, warm, fuzzy feeling. They're being changed, but what is really happening is they're experiencing Another person. When we fall in love with someone, we're experiencing that person. And of course, (laughs) I like the eyes. (laughs) We're experiencing other people when we fall in love with them. And that does change us. So the person, the person is the actual thing that's happening. That's the objective reality. Of course... The the consequence of that is the subjective part of it. We are changed. But it's only because we've spent time with that person. So it's not where... I'm in love. No, it's I'm participating in love with that other person. And that's why I, I really have started to like, you know... This whole notion of Dan just saying go on a date with Jesus. Because he's saying just... Have fun with Jesus. Spend time with Him, and learn just to be thankful that you're with Him. <clears throat> um, Monica once told me, well, a couple weeks ago, and you maybe even caught the conversation. Monica's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." Now. <laughs> <laughs> but she says that she was talking with a professor on campus who said that um, Jesus never claimed to be a Christian. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it was one of my classmates. Said. Oh, it was one of the classmates, okay. But they said that Jesus never claimed to be a Christian. And Monica told me this, and I kind of laughed. I was like, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what we can say of Jesus was that he was one with his Father. He was like his Father. Um, and he said that me and the Father are one. I abide in the Father And he and I are one. Um, And what he called for his disciples to do was to be like him. Because he followed it up. He says, I and the Father are one. And you and I are one. So abide in me as I abide in the Father. And so what he was telling people was, if you want to call me anything, was I'm a yahweh (laughs) I'm not a Christian. I'm like Yahweh. And so he was saying, since I'm like Yahweh, be like me. I mean, and that's what the term Christ, or disciple means. A disciple is someone who is like their teacher, who looks like their teacher, who acts like their teacher. I mean, resembles them in every way. And so, really, of course, Jesus wasn't a Christian. We're the Christians. And the term Christian was actually first noted in Antioch by people outside of the church. They were looking at these people who they thought were nuts. Because they were so compassionate, so kind, in the midst of a really, a a sexually rampant, sinful place. And they couldn't put their minds around it in in any way other than to say, they look like Jesus of Nazareth. They're like him, they're Christians. And so the the term kind of stuck for people who look like Jesus. All of us who really live a life to be like Christ are Christians. And so we're taught to spend time with Him, to go on that little date, again and again and again, just so that we look like Him. Because think about the two people falling in love. Or even, if you spend time with your friends a lot, isn't there the the common joke, you two look alike, you two act alike. (laughs) Really, that often happens. And if I go back to Korea, and I laugh at this, but when I was there, I had some of my Korean co-workers, they would see me teaching in class, or just see me out doing whatever, and they would say, you look like a Korean, (laughs) and I would just be like, what in the world? And I'm sure it wasn't my white appearance, but I mean, what they were getting at was, um, my behavior kind of looked like what a Korean behavior looked like, and I think it just came from me hanging out with Korean people. I think it came with me just embracing and loving the culture when I was there. And it's kind of still funny to me, but these dates with Jesus, they're important because it reminds us that it's not just knowing about God that we're supposed to experience. We're supposed to experience God himself, just as we're supposed to experience another person. Mm -hmm. And that's where the change happens. That's where we begin to look like him. And that's where we begin to act like Him. And really, it it brings us to a place where we're just thankful that we're with Him. Thankful. And just to simply know that He is God. And that's where the trust and just the longing to be with Him comes. So back to the nine lepers. Think about the nine lepers who didn't return to jesus and i think a lot of times we 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 act like this because we take everything that we've been given in life for granted Um, we may even go as far as saying maybe not explicitly but by the way we act when i need something i'll come to jesus when i'm in need when i'm hard up when i'm lost i'll come to jesus then why do we do that well, it's because we know Jesus is so kind. We know he's compassionate. We know he's merciful. So that we, when we need to go to him, we know that he'll bring us comfort. We know that he will provide that need. But if we do that, I think we're missing the point there. Because the point is, as Jesus says, abide with me. We're meant to just experience life with him. Because that abiding with Him leads us into living a life that is all for the glory of God. So we should be making it a a habit of our lives to continually thank God for everything that we have and everything that we've been given, and to see it all as blessings of God's grace. Nothing that we've deserved, nothing that we've merited, just simply that it's God who has given us everything. Because that makes us into thankful people. Who are much more gentler who are much more grateful and it stops us from assessing life in terms of what is owed to us or what we owe to another person it just brings us to a place where we're not bent on bitterness and anger but we're just thankful for what we have thankful for the littleness or the muchness that we may have So, what we see in the text happening here is the basic picture of salvation is happening. The one leopard who, out of the whole group that was healed, only one turns back to thank Jesus. And what he's doing, he's recognizing that what has happened is from God. And it has happened through the work of Jesus. He stopped to stop. And he turned to thank Jesus because he was personally appropriating what had happened to be from Jesus alone. And what happened there? Jesus in turn gifted him even more. Because he said in the declaration, he says, your faith has healed you. So he's gifted him even more because it wasn't just the physical wellness that he was being healed from. There was something more deep in his heart. What was being restored was his relationship and his brokenness that we see in the wellness with God. He was being brought back into a good relationship with God the Father. And that's what we see happening in the Gospel of Luke. It's constantly calling for us and all the listeners who read it and participate in it to make a decision about Jesus. It's asking us that question. Who am I to you? And it's asking all of us to consider the cost of discipleship. Because what we're given here in the story with this Samaritan is the perfect example of someone who has made the right decision. And if we haven't made the right decision about Christ, it's calling us again and again. Make this decision. In such the same way that the Samaritan did. And I'm asking you to consider the Easter story. We're in this journey of Lent. Consider the Easter story. Christ's eyes on the cross. And on that cross he puts sin to death. And he's resurrected to life. Which in turn gives new life to us. But as we see Christ on the cross, do we recognize... What has really taken place there? Because think of the nine lepers who were healed. They went on about their way after their healing. And think about maybe even if we could just speculate, when they went back into their village, they may have even recognized that Jesus did heal them. Because I'm sure their friends caught up with them and they said, You're back. You don't have leprosy. You're healed. How did this happen? And I'm sure they said well, Jesus healed me This Jesus of Nazareth We found him And we asked for mercy And he healed us But Only applause is, The only applause Is given to the one Who came back to Jesus Because Jesus says It's only that one Who really is showing That he has a living faith in God A trust That will carry him Through this life and beyond this life. In the work of of Christ on the cross, we have all been offered forgiveness. But Jesus says, take up your cross also. Deny yourself and then follow me. What he is saying is enter into a deeper, more intimate relationship that is based on humility and it's based on a faithful, loving trust of God. So, the question is we've all been offered this, but are we accepting it? Are we repenting? Are we turning away from the things that have brought us away from God? And are we dwelling in a loving, faithfully trusting relationship with the only one who has made this possible? And this is where we truly see the story in its full context of the gospel. Because Jesus isn't concerned about us really living with the perks and the power of just knowing God. Jesus is concerned with faith. He's saying, you don't have to have a lot of it. But do you have faith? Do you trust God? And he wants us to see that it's relational. It's not just an idea. It's not just that, like love. It's not just something we think about we and want, we want to feel. It's real. And it's something that we have to act upon and experience. Because if we read on, and we're going to hear about this next week when Dan's back with us, when we read on in the story, Jesus is soon to talk about the coming kingdom of heaven. And of course, what do we think about when we think about the coming kingdom of heaven? It's wonderful to think about just like the passages. The talk about the wonderful visions of heaven. Especially if we read in Revelation. I just want to read this for you. Because this just talks about the beauty of heaven. John, another gospel writer, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice and, and from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among people now. He will dwell with them as their God, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have all passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne throne said, See, I am making all things new. And I think that's to me when I think about heaven, that's what we're automatically drawn to. But Jesus doesn't bring us there. When he starts talking about the coming day of the Lord, what he says to his disciples is look up. And as we hear that bird calling, he says, Look up and see the vultures. It's not a pretty picture. Because the coming of the day of the Lord will indeed bring redemption and reconciliation in relationship. And it will bring a newness to all God's creation and to all those who have followed him faithfully. Mm-hmm. But on the coming day of the Lord, there's going to be surprises. The vultures in the sky mean there's nothing but judgment. And there's nothing but death for a lot of people. And Jesus wants us to see that very clearly. And he reminds us, as he did with the community of faith then, that in the days coming between now and then, it's only going to get tougher here on earth. Times are going to get harder to live as as a faithful follower of Christ. There's going to be a lot that persuades us to walk away from this community. There's going to be a lot that that teases us and persuades us to participate in a life that is selfish, in a life that is seeking self-gain. Life's going to get tougher, and Christ wants us to know that. But, He wants us to be concerned with faith. Because He says that faith... The trust that that, that you have with God and the life of gratitude that you can have in that trust, he says that will be the fuel, that will be the energy that brings you through all of these difficult times to see the beauty of heaven where all tears are wiped away and there is no mourning or sadness. He says the trust that you have with God, that relationship, that time that you spend on a date with Him, the experience of His person is what will carry you through until you see the fullness of all His glory. Christ said to all of His listeners who were faithful to Him, he said, Wait on the Lord. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. concludes our presentation. For more information and other audio content, please visit lifelightchurch.org.